want to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids, Gray Station, and Blue Station. We talk about this every week. What are they going to be learning about? Well, Blue Station is going to be learning about the singer. No, we're not talking about American Idol or America's Got Talent. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. You can ask the kids as you're having dinner today, follow up with them about what does it look like, this singer, the Sermon on the Mount. In Grace Station, they're going to be asking this question and then being taught the answer. The question is, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Well, here's the answer. Christ died willingly in our place to deliver. He died willingly in our place to deliver. It's almost impossible for me to believe, and yet I see it all the time. God crafting the the text that will be in, in his sovereignty, crafting the songs that we would sing in a way that I could never design, nor could the leaders here or the instruments that just played. Even the teaching here for the grace station, was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Yes. Christ died willingly in our place. Why? To deliver. This morning we're going to be opening the word of God, finding ourselves back in Hebrews chapter 2. Particularly we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. The writer of Hebrews has written a sermon. He's a pastor. What's been the point of his sermon so far? Well, he's wanted us to see the glory of Christ and how exalted that he is, so much higher than all of creation and particularly higher than angels. And so thus far, he's compared Jesus, the eternal son of God, with angels, the messengers or the servants of God. And he's talked almost exclusively about the exalted nature of Jesus' position in comparison to all other things. As we finished up Hebrews chapter 1 and rolled into Hebrews 2, the first question was asked. Action was called for. Are you neglecting this great salvation that had been declared by Jesus, the eternal Son of God? The argument went, Those who heard the message of angels in the Old Testament and ignored it were punished, and rightfully so. How much more will you be punished? How much more foolish is it for us to neglect the message of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? Now the argument continues on from there. Let's not neglect, church, this great salvation. More about that in these following verses. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, it'll be on the screen for you. If not, good luck. You'll find it in the black hardback Bible in front of you, and I did not bring one up here, so I can't tell you where and when it is. Somebody want to shout that out to me? 1188. We're going to be close by there for most of this morning. Here's what the Word of God says on 1188, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is a man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little 
while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word together. Father, we do just that. We pause as we do every week, and we ask that you bless the reading of your word because we can't do that in and of ourselves. Father, it's your word that gives life. It's your word that opens eyes. It's your word that changes our minds. We pray that you do that right now. We pray that your spirit would accompany the reading of your word and that this church would be strengthened and helped as a result of our time looking at Jesus declared in these holy words. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Up until now, we have almost exclusively been discussing of Jesus, his exalted state as compared to angels, but now we begin to transition to his identification with us as brothers. And that's how you really need to look at this passage. You need to recognize that it is a part of a greater uh, treaty or it's a part of a greater dialogue. The sermon is making a point. We saw a point a moment ago that we're not to neglect this great salvation. And now he's ramping up to make another incredible point We find ourselves in transition. He wants us in our minds to see the connection between the exalted state of Jesus and his humility and what that means for us. We'll see that more clearly next week as we understand that he is the firstborn among many brothers. Imagine that. That Jesus, the eternal son of God, would be willing to condescend and identify with you. And you might be shocked all the more that he would be willing to identify with the person next to you. And yet I don't want it to be lost on you. That he, the eternal son of God, would identify with you, broken as you are. Weary and sinful as you are. Doubting as you have. And yet he identifies with us. And he strengthens us. And he forgives us. All the more reason to see him in his exalted state. This morning as we walk through this passage, I want to just show you the structure of the passage. It's a very brief set of verses. The overarching structure is threefold. First, we see the introduction to the psalm. And so the pastor is going to give a brief introduction. And he does that in verses 5 and 6a. And then he jumps into the actual psalm. He's introduced it. Now he's going to explain or or give us the psalm, which he does in verses 5 through 8. It's actually a quote from Psalm chapter 8. We'll read that in just a moment. And then he goes from the introduction of the psalm to actually giving the psalm to, as a preacher should, expositing the psalm. Taking the things that are in this psalm and digging them out and putting them in order for you to see and savor as you consider Jesus. What will be the point of his sermon, of his exposition of Psalm 8? Well, it will be this. Because Jesus is ruling, we can have hope. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear that this morning. Because Jesus is ruling, you can have hope. 
three subpoints underneath of that main idea, really just breaking down that statement is this, threefold. One, Jesus is ruling over all. Jesus truly is ruling over all. You say, he's ruling over my weakness. He's ruling over my sickness. He's ruling over the death of a loved one. He's ruling over my temptation and my sanctification, slow as it is. Jesus is ruling over those things. And yet, the second point that the writer, the preacher here wisely and pastorally points out is number two, we only see his rule in part. That should have gotten some amens or maybe some omis. The fact that we know in our minds that he is ruling and yet at times we don't see how in the world he could be truly ruling and ordaining the things that take place in our lives. How could the Savior of all the world, how could the firstborn among many brethren, the one to whom all things have been subjected, how can he allow you to wrestle with the things that you are wrestling with? We're going to address that for the pastor here in Hebrews 2 will. And finally, we'll end on this note. Because of the fact that Jesus is ruling And in spite of the fact that we can only see it in part, we can, Christian, we can, brother, sister, endure with hope. This is the trajectory of the sermon this morning. Let's roll up our sleeves and and dig in. And so first I said we we would see the introduction of the psalm, which is plainly there in verses 5 and 6a. What does the word of God say? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. There's so much that we can't see because we're not first century Jews. But as we do a little digging around and as we make some uh, well-educated guesses from this text, there's quite a bit of information that begins to flood in just from this simple verse. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. First, I want us to take a look at this word subjected. It's used often in the New Testament, and when you have a word that's used a lot of times, you can read it in its context, and it helps you to understand and get a more full and deeper meaning of that word. And so when we see that it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, and yet we know it's the Son that these things have been subjected, we might ask the question and be wise to do so, what does it mean to be subjected to or to be subject to? Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 9 and 10 use this very same word in the Greek. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. What we understand about this nature of being subjected or subject to another is that it's a position of formation, of discipline. God has not subjected the world to come to angels. Who has he subjected it to? The Son of God. Who will form and fashion the world to come? Who is forming and fashioning and discipling the world that now is? The kingdom of God, which is visible in the hearts of Jesus' saints. It's not the angels. It's a position of formation. But we also see it used in Romans chapter 8, among many other times, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. If you're taking notes, you could jot it next to uh, that verse, verse number 5. For the, time that is, or for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit 
to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We understand from this context that the word subject means uh, to, to heed. One that has subjected himself actively to another is listening to, receiving direction from. So of the relationship, it's formative. On the part of the one that's being subjected, they are listening. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. In 21, we read that we are to submit to one another, brother, sister. We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're to lower ourselves out of love for our brother and reverence for Christ. Next verse says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And what do we see here? Well, this isn't, subjection isn't a a lesser of value necessarily. It's not a demeaning place, but it is, we see from this text, understanding the relationship of we, the church, to Christ, the great shepherd. We see that it's a place of dependence. It's a position of leadership. And we, the church, as we depend on Christ, so should wives depend on their husbands. And husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and give themselves for their wives as Christ did so for the church. This word subjected. The world to come. Who was it subjected to? Who is leading it? Who is forming it? Who is the place, the the person that we should depend on? Is it the angels? No. It's Christ himself. Christ himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, this is really important. We won't have time to really do a deep dive into this. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we understand that God has, in fact, subjected this world to angels. Now you say, well, isn't that a contradiction of terms? Didn't we just say that he's not subjected the world to angels? No, that's not what it says. It's the world to come that he's not subjected to angels. There's a differentiation being made here. The idea is, the reality is that the Jews, and rightly so, believed that God had somehow divided up the nations, divided up the world and set angels over them in some form or fashion associated with the boundaries. We see that in Deuteronomy 32, but it's backed up in Daniel chapter 10, where we see in Daniel 10 and also in Daniel 12 that angels are designated over certain realms, over certain nations. There's the prince of Persia. There's the prince of Greece. Even Michael is referred to there as the great prince who watches over God's people, which is Israel. And then that's the Old Testament, but we also see it in Ephesians chapter 6. What do we read there? Well, the principalities, as spoken about in Daniel, are talked about in Ephesians. And they're depicted as evil, opposing the will of God even, as we recognize both in Ephesians and in Daniel. And so the present world, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Who do we wrestle against? Principalities. Against rulers. Present darkness, language depicting and helping us to see there are forces that are at play that are working in the unseen realm. 
And this world has been subjected to angels, both angels and demons, heavenly beings, good and bad. But what we see here, very clearly told for us in Hebrews 2.5, is that that's this world, but not the world that is to come. Not the world that is to come. There is not one angel, good or bad, that will hold any position of government in the coming age. It's quite the opposite. Christ will rule. He will be the light. And we, church, will judge angels, as Paul speaks about. Furthermore, we understand that Jesus is making all things new. There's a coming heaven and a coming earth, a new way of living, a new culture, one that operates entirely as God intended, ruled by God himself. 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, Philippians 2 and 3, 1 Peter 3, they all very clearly indicate that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Even those who will not do so willingly, they will all submit to Christ in the world that is to come. In verse 6, the writer, the pastor, goes on to say, it has been testified somewhere. He's still introducing Psalm 8. It's been testified somewhere. Maybe one way you could loosely say this exact statement is, doesn't the Bible say somewhere something about... It's essentially what you might think he's saying, but it's not exactly right. Let me help you understand a few things. First is the word testified. The word testify is really a legal term, and it's rarely used. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's used elsewhere in the Bible, this underlying Greek term. But it is a legal term. It's in the sense of being peer-reviewed. It's the highest authority, in a sense, that you could get Biblically speaking, it's been testified. And testified by what? It's been testified by the very word of God. The idea is that the, the world to come is not governed by rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, or present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, but it's governed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is attested to elsewhere in the Bible. Somewhere. It's been testified somewhere, somehow. It's a funny way of saying it, but he's not being irreverent. He's not being disheveled. He's not last minute, oh, I know it's somewhere. I should have looked up that reference. Any Jew in the first century hearing this would have known exactly what he's referencing. Matter of fact, we can see clearly as he has cited this text word for word for the Septuagint that he is well aware himself. What is he doing? Well, he's giving a subtle acknowledgement to the divine authority of Scripture. And what is he saying? He's saying it doesn't matter who wrote that. It doesn't matter which prophet of God wrote that. It doesn't matter which psalm it's in. It is, in fact, the word of God. God said this. What has God said? Well, we looked at the introduction to the psalm. Let's see what the psalm actually says. So verses 5 through 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I want to invite you to just take your uh, hard black Bible or the Bible that you're using and turn to Psalm 8. Turn actually to the 
to the book of Psalms, Psalm 8. I want you to see side by side, so to speak, the entirety of this psalm. What does Psalm 8 say? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What's the psalmist doing here? What's our brother David doing? Well, he's taking an extended look at Yahweh, his Lord. And by the way, in the beginning he says, Lord of lords, Lord our Lord. That first Lord, he's saying, the name of God, O Yahweh, you are my master. You are our master. Know this, that David was chosen by God. The fact that David would say, you are My Lord, he's not saying, I've chose you. He's saying, you have chosen me. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence or to hear your name or to let alone speak it. You have made you, uh, you have chosen me. He goes on to say, how majestic, how awesome is your name. How great and terrible is your name. How breathtaking is your name. How unsafe are you? Majestic. He says, above the heavens. Your name is so great, it's it's higher than the heavens, higher than all the other gods. Where do the gods, so to speak, the gods of the other nations, where do they abide? Where is their home? Well, in the heavens. And yet, where does Yahweh abide? Where does he live, according to the psalmist? Well, his glory is set above the heavens. He's higher than all other gods. And how has Yahweh established strength? Well, he's used the weak to confound the strong. That's the reference here. That's why he talks about babies and enemies. He's saying, I, I, God, I, I see that the, the weakness of human flesh speaks to the might of your power Against your foes. He keeps going. When I consider your heavens, whose heavens are they? Whose heavens? When I look at your heavens, Yahweh, how incredible are they? He says, when I look at the work of your fingers, the things that you've accomplished, So many times we are able to learn so much about someone else by looking at what they've accomplished. Maybe they're an artist and we see the work that they've done. Maybe we see some some tinkering that they've accomplished or applied to some broken down device. And we see their strengths. We see their abilities. We see the work of their fingers. And while we've all painted wonderful little pictures worthy of hanging on the refrigerator and we've all been able to fix this or or play this piece on the piano, when you think about the work that God has accomplished, the things that he has made with his anthropomorphic fingers, we're speechless. At least we should be. What have you accomplished? 
What has God accomplished? Well, he hung the moon and the stars. He set them in place. That's what he has done with his fingers. That's what he's accomplished. And so the psalmist takes a look at Yahweh, his master, and he's dumbfounded. Especially as he rolls into verse 4. This is his God. This is his master. And in comparison, he says, as he considers his own life, what is man that you're mindful of him? (laughs) By you, all things consist. You hung the moon and the stars. You keep them in order. We can navigate the ocean at night. You hung all those things in place, and yet at the same time, you're mindful of me, the psalmist says. What is man? Why, he's saying, why would you do that? Well, what is the answer? We're meant to ask that question. What is the answer? Is it because of the greatness of man? Or is it because of the great grace of God? Using Hebrew poetry, he basically, in the next statement, restates The same first statement. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? There's no real difference between mind being mindful of and caring for. There's also no real difference between a man and a son of man. This is just Hebrew poetry. Asking the same question. It's not a reference to Jesus as the son of man, even though he does use that title for himself in the New Testament. You contrast, though, God and man, the appropriate question to ask is, what is man? Why are you mindful of him? And yet in spite of that hanging question, he goes on in verse 5. Yet, in spite of his lowliness, you've made him just a little lower than the heavenly beings. A little lower than the angels. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've set man, lowly man, over your work, over your creation. You've put all things under his feet. Sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the the depths of the sea. Doesn't that make you just kind of shudder a little bit? We have dominion over all of those things. What's the psalmist referencing? Well, he himself Though Psalm 8 is being referenced in Hebrews 2, Psalm 8 is itself referencing Genesis chapter 1. If you want to turn there, I welcome you to do it. I'll read it as well. Genesis 1, 25 and 26, probably first page of the Bible on your copy. The scriptures say, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And when creeps is used, it's talking about spiders. And everybody shuddered as well. Because it goes on to say, and God saw that it was good. Yes, even spiders. And then God said of all of his creation, everything that creeps, everything that swims, everything that flies, the entire world, he says of it, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
You could tell that David, the psalmist, had, he paid attention in Sunday school class. Maybe they had fashioned Genesis 1 into a song, and maybe as he was writing Psalm 8, he was reminded of all the things that God had created and how mankind was supposed to be in dominion over all that God had created. The psalm rounds out, though, again, with that statement, the same place that it started out, O Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, our Master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Not only have you created all these things, including man, but you've taken man, lowly as he is, and you've made him to be in this place of dominion. You've subjected all things to him. Now you might be asking, what usefulness does the preacher find in this psalm? What usefulness does the writer of Hebrews find in Psalm 8? Well, he plainly states it. Let's keep looking. We're going to jump past the intro to the psalm, the psalm itself, now into the third portion of our text this morning. We're going to actually work through the exposition of the psalm, which is found in verses 8 and 9. What does it say? Now, in putting everything, this isn't a quotation anymore. This is his exposition again. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Before we begin to see the exposition of this text, we need to understand how we are to interpret this. Who is this passage speaking about? There are two schools of thought, and really they are widely or greatly divided. You have the anthropological interpretation, which interprets this text as according to man. You and me, fallen man. But then there's another one, and that's the Christological interpretation. And that's the order to interpret this according to Christ, the Son of God. Which is it? Well, this psalm is, in fact, regarding Adam and his descendants. In a sense, it is, in fact, about us. Until now, the psalm, has, psalm 8 had been understood as a reference to Adam, as a reference to man, which, by the way, Adam simply means man. Man was made lower than the heavenly beings. He was made lower than the angels. He was, in fact, given dominion over creation. But it is also true that he fell. And that because of his fall, that there was a curse upon all that God had created. Was there not? God made everything. He looked at it all and he said, this is good. And then I'll take man and I'll make everything subject to him. And ideally, he will rule in my place. He'll rule according to my edicts. And he'll bring flourishing and expansion and multiplication to this earth. And that's not exactly what we see taking place, is it? Because of man's fall, creation was cursed, and creation is in a bad way. Is it not? Our bodies feel the effect of sin. Our families are destroyed by it. Even the, the, uh, the, the climate and various things taking place that we see, the great tragedies throughout the nation and throughout the world, all of these things pointed to the fact that under man's dominion, the world has suffered. 
And then bearing it in mind, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Where God takes the dominion in a sense and gives it, divides up the world between these heavenly beings. And so the anthropological interpretation is in fact true. But then there's also the Christological interpretation. Is it one or the other? Well, it's actually both. We clearly see that the writer sees in this psalm, Jesus, the Messiah, is the new man. That he is the one that has also been made lower than the angels, a little lower and for a little bit of time. The key in this interpretation is to understand that in his humanity, Jesus fully accomplished what was intended from the beginning. Jesus, the eternal, divine Son of God, equal with God the Father, added to himself a human nature. We've talked about this so many times. And in that adding his human, uh, human nature to himself, he did not take away any part of his per- person or a divine nature. He only added two. And here's the connection. He came to do what the first man was sent to do. He had come to do what Yahweh determined should be done, and that is what the psalm says at the beginning and the end, that Yahweh's name would be made known and great throughout all the earth. Adam failed, and the second Adam accomplished that. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there's a lot more that's being said here, but we can see at least this one component. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, who, by the way, took on dust. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just As we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. The component that we can remove and take with us out of 1 Corinthians 15 is this. That Adam was in fact the first man. And in a sense, Jesus was the second. Adam was called to give dominion, exercise dominion to cause flourishing in the world. And he plunged it into darkness. And now the second man has come, the man from heaven. And he has led us back to God. It's interesting, though. It says he was made a little lower than the angels in his humanity. And this was only for a little time. Now, we know who this psalm is speaking about. It's not speaking about Adam. It's not speaking about you. It's speaking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and now is accomplishing what we should have been able to do. And yet we're not able to do. In this exposition, though, as we continue working through verses 8 and 9, we're going to see three things. First, I already gave them to you once, but we'll review them quickly. Jesus is ruling over all. This is what we can gather from this psalm. Two, we also only see his rule in part. And that's as we contrast Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. It helps us to see that though he is ruling, as the first point says, we can only see his rule in part. And we'll work through that a little bit. And finally, we'll end with this statement, we can endure with hope. This is what 
I believe the author, the, the, the preacher here in Hebrews 2, wants us to gather, that we can endure with hope. Why is he addressing this to the congregation there that receives Hebrews the first time? Well, they're experiencing a great deal of persecution. And so we know that if that's what they're facing, and he's proclaiming the, the greatness of God displayed in Jesus Christ, that we can endure with hope that he is sovereign over your persecution even. He's sovereign over the difficulty that you presently face. And so number one, Jesus is ruling over all. Where do we get that? Well, there in verse eight. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, which is Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. Continuing to develop and flesh out this word subjection, we see it simply means control. The control of this world, to what degree? Nothing left out, has all been placed under Jesus. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of that new man, that second Adam, the word of God says in verse 27, for God the Father has put all things in subjection under his feet. All things are in subjection under his feet. Now, most of us aren't ancient Near East scholars. None of us were raised in the first century. But what comes to mind when you see one person placing their feet on another as if they are a footstool? What comes to mind? Kings? Conquest? Subservience? Subjection? Providence? We don't ask, well, I wonder who's winning. One is standing with his feet on the other, and the other is kneeling with that person's feet on their back. Who's winning? Who's, 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 who's in subjection to who? We don't need to be scholars to know that when we see that in a hieroglyphic, we know that the guy that is having his feet on somebody else's back, that he is the one that has all things in subjection, at least the things that are under his feet. And the scriptures teach us clearly that all things are in subjection under his feet. When there would be a conquest, whether it was through the Israelites or, or some other nation, oftentimes it would be depicted, the story would be told that the king or the general would place his foot on the throat, on the head of those whom they had defeated. And this is what we see. All things have been in subjection under Jesus' feet. It's an ancient picture. It's an ancient practice, and it points to Jesus' exhaustive dominion over everything. And he goes on to say in verse 9, but we see him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. You see, he was made lower than the angels in his humanity. For a little while, play on words, for a little while, for 33 years, the Son of God, eternal and co-equal with God, took on human flesh and became lower than the heavenly beings in his humanity. But now he is crowned with glory and honor. There's nothing that's outside of his control. It's exhaustive. And yet, from our perspective, his exhaustive rule is elusive. From our perspective. In a sense, 
Sometimes we can't really conceive that God would be providentially ruling through the Son. And that's the second part. So while all things are under his rule, we only see his rule in part. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But from our perspective, it's difficult to see. What does the scripture say? Well, it says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. As you read that, you might see the problem that we face. There's an issue that we've got to resolve. In chapter 1, we see the quotation of Psalm 110, that Jesus is to sit and to wait, in a sense, while God the Father makes a footstool for him crafted out of his enemies. And then in Psalm 8, which is referenced and quoted here for us this morning, we see that it already has taken place, which is true. Which is it? Is it something that we are waiting for and hoping for? Is it, or is it something that's already taken place? Does the Son have universal dominance now? Or only in the future? Well, the reality is that it's kind of both. Already and not yet. Now, but not yet. One theologian helps us here. He says, speaking of this tension that we face, that the now and the not yet, between what, what is present reality but not yet seen, expresses that, we, that what may be referred to as the inaugurated rule of Christ. That the inaugurated rule of Christ has come. He goes on to say, that is the reign of Christ and the reality of Christian experience have begun. But will not fully be actualized until the final consummation at the end of the age. The son's rule is already a reality. That reality, however, must be confessed by faith until we see its full impact at the end of the age. You see, the reality is, and Christians know it in our hearts, we display it with our lives, that Jesus is Lord. It's the glory of God the Father. And we live in subjection to that rule and that reign that already exists. And we await the day when it will be finally made manifest for everyone. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord also. The thing that makes Jesus appear to not be sovereign is actually the thing that, humanly speaking, made him worthy of that glory and honor that he has been given. What does it say? Because of the suffering of death. He was given this crown of glory. He was given this crown of honor. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, the Father, he might taste death for everyone. We'll talk more about this Next Sunday as we address verses 10 and following. But notice, it's the grace of God that caused Jesus to taste death. The grace of God, the kindness of God towards us that would allow Jesus to suffer. And that's the thing that's made him worthy, humanly speaking. How can Jesus receive any more glory and honor than he already has? Remember, in his humanity, he added to himself that human flesh. He humbled himself. He tasted death in full obedience to the Father, 
and now he is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus now reigns. You may not see it, you may not feel it, but he reigns. He's working all things together for good, for his glory, for our good. And because of that, brothers and sisters, we can endure. This is the final point. We can endure this morning, and we can endure with hope. You might be asking this morning, how are we to apply this passage? What are, what are we to do? Surely we're not to neglect this great salvation that's been declared, right? That's not on the list. Don't neglect it. Another way of saying this is don't neg- of, of, of not neglecting the great salvation is endure with hope. Don't, don't leave it alone. Don't say this is a worthless cause. Regardless of the things that you're facing, don't abandon the thing that we know to be true because Jesus has declared it. And we see him now in glory and honor, crowned. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 60. I want to read you guys a story. Verse 51, Acts 7. This is the last bit of a sermon preached by Stephen. A man full of the Holy Spirit, a follower of Jesus, sold out. He's preaching a sermon to a group of people that were, to say hostile would be a great understatement. But he's preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching the great salvation that he surely will never neglect. And he doesn't want them to either. And so he calls them to repent after he declares the great salvation. And this is what he says in verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What does it say then? What happens in verse 54? Now when they, this hostile crowd, when they heard these things, it says they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, how does he respond? It says he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here he is preaching the gospel. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that beautiful? When you think about yourself like preaching the gospel to your kids or to your neighbor, it's like, man, doesn't it feel good? It's beautiful. And they're like listening. And they're like, yeah, can I go to church with you? Right, we want, that's what we kind of imagine, right? That's what we want to hear. That's what we want to see. And yet this brother here, full of the Holy Spirit, declares the gospel to them, calls them to repent, and what do they do? They grind their teeth at him. He's about to face some pretty serious persecution. But what does he look for? Does he look at their hands to see what kind of weapons they're going for? Does he look for his brothers for defense? What does it say he does? He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he gazed into heaven. You might be wondering, when I face persecution, when I face difficulty, where is God? At the passing of a loved one, 
Where's God? When sin has overtaken you and you, you just can't get any deliverance from it. Where are you? My heart is broken. I need help. I need rescue. Where are you? What does Stephen say? In the midst of persecution, in the midst of great, great difficulty, he looks to heaven. Why? Because he expects to see something. He expects to see God. Are you still ruling? Just as I thought, you're there. And what else does he see? Not just God the Father, but who's at his right hand? Did he really resurrect? Is he really ruling right now? He is. Stephen looks up, and what does he see? He sees Jesus. And he said, of what he saw, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed all together at him. They overcame him. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, listen to this. I imagine kneeling, rocks pelting him, bouncing off of his side of his head. He calls out, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What's another way to say what he said? On his knees, looking up into heaven, seeing Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, he says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. This is what our brother Stephen sang. And you better know that he was carried into the arms of his Savior. He arose and he did go to Jesus. Quickly, as we come to a close, I want you to see three or four things rather that I think Stephen received as he looked to Jesus. It wasn't just his practice to look to Jesus when rocks were hitting him in the head, but on a daily basis, he's looking to Jesus. And here's one thing that he saw when he looked to Jesus. One, he saw that Jesus declined pleasure. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He left the pleasures of heaven, the things that were rightfully his, The things that, in fact, would have distracted him from the thing that God, his father, had called him to do, he declined pleasure on a regular basis. We don't face a lot of persecution in this day and age, but we do face a lot of pleasure. Brothers and sisters, as we see Jesus, what do we see? We see him not enduring, or or not uh, uh, going after the things that make life easy. There's nothing wrong with ease necessarily, but that was not Jesus' goal. As we in our lives consider Jesus, what will we see? We'll see him declining pleasure in the day of instant gratification, short lines and no waiting. Jesus declines those things. He doesn't take the, the path of least resistance. He doesn't take the path that's most comfortable, and neither should we. And in a sense, as we think of that, enduring things that aren't necessarily pleasant, you might think, well, this is a bit of white knuckling, isn't it? And in a sense, it is. But hold that thought. 
When Stephen looked at Jesus, what did he see? We saw him, he, Jesus was declining pleasure. Number two, he suffered persecution. Here's Stephen about to be stoned. And he knows that countless times Jesus was also in the same spot. And because it wasn't his time yet, he was carried away. And maybe the mob was blinded. and He was in some form or fashion rescued. But how did Jesus exit this life? On a cross, on a stake. His life squeezed out of him. His blood poured out on the ground. He suffered persecution. Oftentimes we'll do whatever we can to avoid persecution. And then there's the other side of us who do whatever we can to, to gain persecution and then call it something like persecution when it's really you just getting what you deserved. But we see that Jesus didn't run from persecution. He suffered through it. He suffered through it. And so he declined pleasure. He suffered persecution. So should we. But he also tasted death. Even Jesus tasted death. You say, in this life, is this really, if, if, if Jesus is, is, is really on the throne, if he's really sovereign over all things, why can't I have everything I want? If he's really sovereign, why do I have to face persecution? If he's really, truly sovereign, why must I taste death? Because Jesus did. Jesus did. When Stephen saw his Lord and Savior, when he saw the heavens open up, he saw and remembered that Jesus experienced all of these things and he endured them. And how did he endure them? Because point number four, Stephen saw that in spite of him denying pleasure, in spite of him suffering persecution, in spite of him tasting death, he now, number four, enjoys glory. He enjoys glory. Remember, for, for who the, the joy was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the difficult things. Why? Because he knew what was on the other side. That's not a foreign concept to us, is it? There's much that we have to endure, but there's great hope for what lies on the other side. As we kind of shut this down, I just want to ask you this morning, have you ever felt mocked by Mark eleven twenty four? Maybe you feel mocked because you don't know what that says. And that's not my intention. This is what it says. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received and it will be yours. The words of our master. Have you ever felt mocked by that? Why am I facing this? Why when I pray do I not get the answer that I'm wanting or looking for? Maybe it's in regard to a prayer of healing or deliverance from temptation or restoration of a relationship or for your joy to be restored pers personally and for you to escape depression or maybe it's for a wayward child. And maybe you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 44 who says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, God? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Don't hide your face. Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up and be our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. I imagine 
Again, Stephen wondering, where is Jesus? I'm about to die. Where is he? And he looks up, and as stones are lobbed at his head, he looks up and he sees Jesus, and Jesus is in heaven, and he's reigning, even though he's facing persecution. Even though he could have been doing something better, he was doing this thing less enjoyable, and now Stephen himself would taste death, but not before his master did. And he looks past all of those things, and he sees that his Lord and Savior, who will receive him as saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Brother, sister, everything that you have been subjected to, Christ has also experienced. And everything that you face is under his subjection. And so in spite of these things, how do you respond when you can't see or understand how this is for your good and his glory? How do you respond? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a clear picture of this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Man, you really saw the sovereignty of God when these kingdoms were conquered, when justice was enforced, when promises were obtained, when the mouths of lions were stopped, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. It's quite an incredible list. So far, it's been easy for the Christian in that list to see the sovereignty of Jesus. All things being placed under his rule. Of course that would happen. The mouths of lions would be stopped. Jesus is on the throne. But what do we say when the mouths of the lions are not stopped? It goes on to say in verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They saw the glory beyond the difficulty. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these who suffered mightily, it says, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. No, not in this life. But verse 40 doesn't leave us there. It says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All those that suffered mightily in those days and all those who do now need to know Revelations 21 that says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You cry now. Weeping only lasts the night. Joy comes in the morning. Why? Well, when the morning comes, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away. The former things, that old world, that old way of doing things, subjected to angels and demons. Who rules now? Jesus, the Son of God. He's seated at the throne, and what is he saying? In Revelation 21, behold, I'm making all things new. And he goes on to say, write this down. These are trustworthy and true. 
It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of water of life without payment. The one who conquers, I will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. One pastor said, Americans have become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become the more important thing than finding God. And worse, we assume that people who find God always feel better. Church, when darkness encompasses your storm-tossed ship, look to the lighthouse. The fear in your heart may be more real to you than the waves that are covering the treacherous, treacherous rocks below. You may doubt your bearings, but do not doubt the lighthouse. You can't see through the fog what lies ahead, but you can see its beams of light that guide you. You can't see the big picture. You don't know what the fog hides, how far the shore is, and how secure your own route is. Look to the lighthouse. Trust it. Endure with hope. He's there on the shore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you and your mercy have extended and called us to this great salvation. You've not left us in the dark, but you've declared to us what is true. You've declared to us Jesus. And you attested to him by great miracles and signs and wonders and even the giving of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he brings. So, Father, help us not to reject it. Help us not to ignore this. And, Father, as we are tempted away to worship lesser things, to chase pleasure, to avoid persecution, and to even fear death. We pray that we would look past all of these things. And we pray that through your spirit empowering us, that we would look to Jesus, we would see the heavens opened, and we would see the Son standing ready to receive us. So that when we arise, we would go to Jesus, full well knowing that he will embrace us in his arms. It's in this great hope that we endure. We ask that this would be true in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.